because here comes the big six man, the British Bulldogs, Dynamite Kid, Davy Boy Smith, along with putting on the tights, Captain Louis Albano. Brutus Beefcake, Greg the Hammer Valentine, and Johnny V, the last match for Captain Lou Albano. From Television City in Hollywood. All right, you guys, you know this is for fun, so take it easy and give him a good show. Now stay tuned for professional wrestling live from the Springfield Gravelarium. Tonight, a Texas death match. Dr. Hillbilly versus the Iron Yuppie. One man will actually be unmasked and killed in the ring. I hope they kill that Iron Yuppie. Thinks he's so big. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, Greetings from Allentown is not taped in front of a live studio audience. Two oh nine. Greetings, Valentown. I am your host, Peter Winston. Probably should have said two oh nine er. I think that's the flight number in the movie Airplane. I tried looking that up, but when you search flight number, movie, airplane, like it doesn't give you that kind of information. Yeah, I, I don't understand what's going on with the internet these days. But today, I don't need any excuse to go back to nineteen eighty six, the World Wrestling Federation, because after all, that is where this podcast started four years ago. Wrestling Challenge. From November 16th, 1986. And fun fact about this episode, it was actually in the running for being the first greetings from Allentown. That's how long it has been in the queue. So I think that's long enough. And it is the 11th out of the 13 episodes of Wrestling Challenge that are now on the award-winning WWE Network. And it is more or less the same as the show that I'll be covering today, which is also on YouTube, but the one on YouTube is missing a couple of elements, and I I just couldn't stand to leave anything out. And I'm glad now, having recorded over a minute of audio, that my computer hasn't hung up or I haven't tripped over a word, because this is, I believe, take number 10, and I don't like when I start the show that way, so I, I should just pour myself right into this. And get in my plugs. You can email the show, Allentown at gmail.com. Facebook.com slash blah, blah, blah. On Twitter, at GFAllentownPod. That is at GFAllentownPod. GFA Live this past weekend. Keithy and I, we concluded our series on the two Monday night shows from June 9th, 1997. Looking at Raw is War and the War Zone from Hartford, Connecticut. Which featured the last Sid match during that run. I did not realize that going in, but yeah, Sid versus Owen Hart, which is kind of funny because Sid came in back in 1996 to replace the Ultimate Warrior, and the Ultimate Warrior's last TV match was against Owen Hart. Just one of those weird coincidences. And this was a show that I actually decided on doing fairly late. Like, I, I was originally going to do an NWA Pro from late 88, but then I decided, you know what? This thing has just been on the list for too long, and I, and I have to do this. And I got tired of looking at the screen cap of Harley Race kneeling after delivering some move to Corporal Kirshner. Yeah, we got some star, star power on this show with a match like that. And it's November 86 in the WWF, and I had to think, if there's one month 
in a particular promotion that stands out. And this can be difficult because, yeah, November of 1991, WWF, I've covered at least three different shows. And there are there's five weeks of shows during that month because of Saturday and Sunday being on the calendar five different times that month because the first was a Saturday. But here, November of 86, is no slouch either when it comes to calendar months in the WWF. I'm, think, I'm thinking of other ones. January of 84, I've talked about many times. For WCW or the NWA, as it were, I, I, I like to... I, there's no one particular month. Maybe August of 1986, but I don't even know if I've actually done a show from that. I mean, you could almost pick out any month in the year 1986 for them. Maybe even October of 85, something like that. I'm just going to keep shouting out months and years. <laughs> And just keep going with that. A world class early in '83. I think I did one in February. That's that's a pretty good one. It's, it's kind of interesting. To just examine what is the best month in every promotion that you can think of. I mean, Memphis is so varied. I don't even think you could really nail that down too much. For UWF, I, I'm thinking maybe something in the middle of 1986. A couple of the guys who were on this show, Coco Ware and Kamala, were in. Watts land at that time, but not for long because Vince was going to be doing a little bit of rating. So anyway, we had the clock change this past weekend. And as I said, I'm very annoyed by that, just just as everybody else is. It seems to be now that rare bipartisan issue where both Republicans and Democrats hate the fact that we change the clocks twice a year, but nobody seems to agree on how to, how to fix it. Because it was pointed out in an article that I read that in 73 and 74, somewhere around that, during the OPEC oil embargo here in the U.S., there was a move to make daylight saving time full time. But the problem with it was when you got to these winter months, you would send the kids to school. Basically, it, it would be pitch black at the time that they'd be going to school. So that was kind of a problem. Of course, the way around that would be to, you know, move school a little bit later in the day during those months. Wouldn't be the worst idea, but I I still stand by my 40 minutes thing, even though it would wreak havoc with other countries, but I I think it would be a nice flex. And yeah, I'm bringing it up again for the second straight week because I'm I'm still still bothered by it. Because not only got to change all my clocks, when I go to my mother's house on on Sunday, I had to go and find all of her clocks because God knows where all of them are. I didn't actually have anything written down to to talk about, which is probably why I'm talking about time being dictated by the government. Although it used to be a lot worse when every city had their own time zone. I mean, the, the Uniform Time Act that was passed in, I think it was the mid-60s, <laughs> extremely important. It's like, you ever see like those clocks on the wall where like the various t- city names are underneath it and then uh, the clock above it, here it is this time in this city. Well, <laughs> that used to be valuable once upon a time. A little place I used to work had clocks for London, Kiev, and for Boston as well, <laughs> in, in case you didn't have your cell phone on you at the time. I mean, what, what the hell else am I going to talk I'm not going to talk about hockey because it literally fills me with rage. Every time I watch my team play, I mean, I'm watching a game right now. This is this is Tuesday night, and they're playing Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh is one of the most 
despised teams I've ever seen. And I, I can see that, you know, this fella Tanev, who basically he came so far to deck Jared Jared Tenorti, I swear to God, he had to change planes in Atlanta for some reason. Like, that's how far he went to make the dirty hit. But I'm sure he'll get together now with Alf Samuelson, Matt Cook, and Derek Engeland. Yeah, I haven't forgotten about him wrecking Mark Savard's career in 2011. And, you know, they, they can all laugh and toast over drinks of how they basically got away with murder. Okay, fine. Hockey makes me mad. Maybe I'll talk about basketball. Well, I haven't watched too much of it lately, other than this thing on, I think it was on Twitter, where James Harden fell down and, and drew a foul, like after his shot had already hit the rim. I mean, it, the whole thing is very maddening, but I think that that's a kind of a cliche when people talk about the NBA as oh, stars getting the call. So I'm not going to really add anything to that. So what about what about baseball? I mean, baseball's coming, and yeah, I'm excited, even though minor league baseball has been systematically murdered by Rob Manfred, but at least it's going to start in May, and hopefully most of us will be vaccinated by then and can enjoy a ball game in a minor league park. But then I see today that the one thing I had to look forward to, because my team, the Baltimore Orioles, is very good, the king, Felix Hernandez, pitching well in the first inning, and he hurts his elbow. So when somebody suffers an elbow injury in their mid-30s, all, all I can think is, you know what, it's it's probably over. It was nice to have him here, but unfortunately, I don't think I'll be buying that King Felix jersey because I don't th- – or shirt. I'm not going to be buying any more jerseys, but uh, – <laughs> oh, God. This th- this is life right now. I mean, I- I'm I'm ready for something anyway. So, all right. So why is November of 1986 – so good for the WWF. Well, you look at the various TVs. Now, the following week on Superstars, which I covered, I think it was episode 106, so about halfway from the first one to this one, had the famous Steamboat versus Savage match where Steamboat, you know, has his larynx crushed. So th- this actually would be the last show before that one, unless you're counting primetime wrestling, which I- I'm not, even though those are eminently watchable despite the fact that that's the rare show where you fast-forward through the wrestling matches to get to the Heenan and Gorilla Banter, because Heenan was there full-time by that point in 86. But in November, because they just revamped the TV in September, so they're only three months in, and this is the A&B show, so it's not like one of those things where, ooh, we've launched WWF Mania on Sunday, and Vince cares about it for about four weeks and puts effort into it. Now we're going to do a little bit more for these superstars of wrestling and in this case wrestling challenge did i ever say that wrestling challenge november 16th 1986 i mean i don't know i'm kind of losing my mind here but this there are very sweet periods where you want to put on your best stuff because i guess it's measured for ad rates and so on and that would be february and may and november so that's why in November of 1991, you see a lot of high-profile matches on TV. And yes, I am counting Bret Hart versus Big Bully Busick as high-profile. I don't think it gets any bigger than that. <laughs> but here, you get ar- arguably three feature matches with named guys on both sides on a wrestling challenge, which feels somewhat unprecedented. I mean, some occasionally things would happen on Challenge that were kind of of interest, such as the first one-on-one between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels in February of 90. Covered that. 
several months back. Of course, it was probably like a year and a half now, but I, I have no concept of time. Macho Man Randy Savage, the Intercontinental Champion against Coco Beware. Now, granted, it is a non-title match, but Savage was all over the TV, and justifiably so, because he was... I think the number one guy. Yeah, Hulk Hogan is the champion. He's the moneymaker, the the draw, and all that stuff. But Randy Savage is the reason why I'm watching what he's doing at this point in time. King, the king. Oh, no, not not that king. Harley Race against Corporal Kirshner. As I said, it's a screen cap that just bothered me to no end. And then... The, the big one, I guess this would qualify as the feature bout because there is an actual hook to it. The Dream Team and their manager, Johnny V, luscious Johnny V, taking on the WWF Tag Team Champions, who actually won it from them at WrestleMania 2, the Nightmare, the Rosemont Horizon, British Bulldogs, and Captain Lewis Albano, who is wrestling here and will be going off into retirement. And you know what that means, because this is professional wrestling. He would come back a number of different times before he actually would retire. Now, this taping was in Glens Falls, New York. Now, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, the hometown boy, he he's not there yet. There was rumblings about him leaving Watts at this point in 1986. I think it was even reported in The Observer. But he did not leave until much closer, early 87 in advance of WrestleMania 3. 8,500 in the building for this taping on October the 29th. So we got a good three weeks before this actually aired. And this was, I think, the first show on the taping. Actually, I stand corrected. I'm so dumb because I said that it's the 11th out of the first 13 shows, and they do three at a time. So 9, 10, 11, 12... So it would be the second one. I don't know where my head's at. And I went back and listened from the beginning of this to now, and I know the audio sounds a little bit weird. Hopefully I can clean it up a bit and have it sound somewhat normal, but I might have to reboot this computer because I don't know what the hell is going on. I sound all I sound like I'm talking into a tin can. In any event, the dark match scene for this one isn't particularly interesting. There is Macho Man Randy Savage over Pedro Morales, that appeared on the unreleased 86 to 95 DVD that came out several years ago. And there's a Hulk Hogan, Paul Orndorff match, which kind of surprises me that they only drew 8,500, considering how well that feud drew for so many months, the end of 86 and into 87. But then again, it was a Wednesday night here in October. You're talking in upstate New York and Glens Falls. I mean, people, people had stuff going on. If you were a Mets fan, you're probably still celebrating the World Series that had been won a couple of days before. I mean, <laughs> I know that I know that uh, Dwight Gooden was celebrating it in a crack house somewhere. He missed the parade, in case you'd forgotten about that. So that's enough 1986 trivia. I should get to it and see if I can fix this audio. It's WWF Wrestling Challenge from November 16th, 1986. <laughs> It's kind of an odd thing, but you pick up on it, especially if you watch the Boston Garden shows on Nesson. Gorilla always seemed to be fond about talking about your favorite easy chair, your favorite recliner, because he would say that in the intro to those shows as well, and he does it here. So Gorilla must have had like a really nice chair in his living room that he was thinking about, like even when he was working. And just assume that everybody else had that. Now, I, I don't have necessarily an easy chair. I mean, I, I have a 
so, a sofa chair in the basement and then in the living room, including one that I fell asleep in on the night that we changed the clocks. And I woke up, it was 4 a.m., and I didn't know if it was real 4 a.m. or if it was actually 5 a.m. But I looked at my cell phone, which will change automatically, and that gave me my answer. Another bizarre thing we got going on here is the Macho Man Randy Savage, the Intercontinental Champion, one of the top guys in the company, is already in the ring for the introductions. And Coco Beware, his challenger, although not really because it's a non-title match, he's going to get his full music and full entrance. And Savage's robe at this time it's not like what you would see later on when he's the champion, or the world champion, I should say. It's more of like a graffiti sort of thing with, like, you know, Randy written in cursive writing, but in sort of a graffiti sort of way. So I, I'm fascinated by this match, Savage and Coco, for a number of different reasons. They're both prominent guys in Memphis, both members of the first family under Jimmy Hart. He must be looking on from backstage. It's Mega Power number one versus Mega Power number four or five. Now, I've given Savage the number one because he was the world champion at the time. And Coco is four or five. He can have like a play in game with Hercules to decide who's the fourth Mega Power. And yeah, the, the, the first family exploding here. And of course, they were teammates in the 1988 Survivor Series. I'm not saying that that's an automatic or anything, but if I find out that there's a Haku versus Hillbilly Jim match out there somewhere that was on television, I'm going to do that show because those are two bona fide main eventers. As I said in the intro, Coco is still relatively new here. He actually debuted. It was a really weird start to his run. He teamed with Paul Roma against the Hart Foundation on the first episode of Superstars, which was September 6th. It ran a minute 51. It just feels like an odd way to roll the sky out. So him having Frankie the Bird there, it's all very new. It's very fresh, which allows Heenan to score some comedy points. It's a shame, Garo, when your only friend in life happens to be a pigeon. Well, you can bet that he's got plenty more friends. It's not a pigeon, incidentally. It's a parrot. It's probably a pigeon with uh, tempera paints on it, watercolors. Some things that you kind of take for granted actually need time to gel I mean, Heenan and Monsoon had not been working together for that long at this point. They've been in the company together for a while, but they've been doing prime time since April. But I think that's different than side-by-side -side doing Wrestling Challenge. I mean, this is only the eighth show that they've done together here. So it's not quite what it would be. You don't get the will you stop and, and those, those sort of things. He, he, in fact, calls him Bobby at one point, like, stop it, Bobby, or whatever that happens to be in a later match. So Savage attacks right away. And what I notice, and I don't know why I haven't put two and two together on this before, is the sunglasses that Randy Savage is famous for Coco is wearing basically the exact same thing, or, or very, very similar. Savage goes up top, double axe handle. He's still got his robe on, and he hits a knee drop, which gets a two count. So he, he's kind of in a hurry here, for whatever reason. I mean, it's a non-title match, so he can just kind of let it all hang out. As I mentioned before, he is all over television during this month. He had a match against Billy Jack Haynes on the first forget if it was Superstars or Challenge, but that was actually a rematch of a previous bout where Danny Davis raised his ugly head or something like that. You have the Steamboat match the following Saturday on Superstars. You got this one with Coco. You got Jake 
on Saturday night's main event, which was taped the day before this aired, but didn't air until November the 29th. And I'm probably leaving something out, but who who really knows? So the, the schedule that he's working, like he's all over TV. So it's kind of like that fighting champion thing, like what you got with Bret Hart at the end of 1992 after he won the world title for the first time. So the question naturally is you're facing this wide variety of opponents. Yeah, it's totally awesome, but is it going to wear you down? Is it going to compromise you in some way? Vulnerable? Vulnerability? That word ain't in my dictionary. I'm impervious to pain. And the Intercontinental Heavyweight Champion is going to go on and on and on for thousands of years. What a dreamer. Thousands of years. Who does he think he is? Methuselah? That just got me thinking if that's the only time Methuselah has ever been mentioned on a wrestling program in history. But Savage is kind of like a college basketball team with a good power rating. Like, he's facing a strong non-conference schedule, and that's going to help him get in the turn. But he, he's the champion, so he probably doesn't necessarily need to do that. It's like when Duke faces, you know, Coastal Carolina at, at Cameron Indoor Stadium. You know, got to rack up that easy win. As we finally get a hope spot from Coco, because he's kind of getting dominated for the first minute and a half, two minutes here. Shot to the gut. Irish whip in a drop kick. And then Coco goes up to the top rope, follows that up with a missile drop kick from the top rope, which he does better than just about anybody else. But Savage gets a foot on the rope for the pinfall, so count is cut off at two and then coco does his 1990 royal rumble play where savage is standing near the ropes and he goes to do a cross body which doesn't make sense here and doesn't really make sense in a royal rumble context like hey why don't i just go flying towards the thing where i will be eliminated if i end up going over it and he coco of course goes over the top so savage goes up to the top rope but gets caught with a shot to the gut when going for the double axe handle, Savage is sent into the barricade and then into the ring post. Heenan calls for a DQ, but that ain't happening. And the match ends in a double countout. Now, we only get three and a half minutes from these guys. And they actually did the match again on this taping where Coco got a countout win over Savage. So, interesting little match here between these two. Of course, I've been very vocal about my... I kind of wish that Coco had maybe gotten a little bit more play going forward, you know, from his initial days. But, of course, that didn't happen. Now, I'm not, I'm certainly not saying he should have pinned Randy Savage in a situation like this, even though it was non-title. And to be fair, Coco did pick up a win over Nikolai Volkov. Yeah, I know it's only Nikolai Volkov, but he was still, you know, he still had a little panache cachet in late 86 on that Saturday night's main event that I was talking about at the end of November. What makes Ricky Steamboat steam? It's the way Randy Savage, the macho man, misuses, mistreats, abuses Elizabeth on TV. I can just imagine what goes on behind closed doors. Savage, what does it do? Give you some inner strength to carry on and be the intercontinental champion? If I were you, Elizabeth, then just take this the way you want it. The next time that Savage pushes you around on national television, I'd take it and slap the grease right off his nose. During this time, you get the update segment at that point in the show on Superstars. But here on Challenge, you get what's known as Wrestler's Rebuttal, where 
Somebody, in this case Ricky Steamboat, is going to take issue with what the Macho Man is doing vis-a-vis Elizabeth. It it wasn't too bad in the match we just saw, but then again, he was already in the ring, so we we missed out on the entire entrance. So set that up for the following week's superstars. Get that program underway in earnest. They had had matches before, but not too many. I know that there's a December of 85 one from the Boston Garden that's out there. But we actually do get a review, and Gorilla just kind of throws it to this, of the Piper's Pit the previous week. So this would be the November 8th Superstars with King Harley Race. And Piper was kind of forced off the set for whatever reason so that Pi- so that Race and Heenan could do their thing. But Piper, of course, has an answer. You see, it didn't take us long to take over this program. He knows it. You know it. I know it. They all know it. There's only one thing. As you know, Vince McMahon, very fond of poop humor. So naturally, it is a toilet seat that Roddy Piper comes out with. But it was one of the ones that's shaped like a C, like the C in the Montreal Canadiens logo. Like, so that there's a, I guess, I guess it makes it easier. Like, you're not just putting like a, a ring around the guy's neck. I mean, you know, it's, it's a little bit easier to get on and off. Which, by the way, toilet seats, I, there was a period of time where I was obsessed with slow closed toilet seats. I mean, at the end of the day, it really doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of difference. Except in one regard. And if, if you listen to one thing I say on this podcast, let it be this. When you go to the bathroom, I don't care if it's number one, number two, or God forbid, number three. Close the lid when you flush the toilet and thank me later. If there's anything that this pandemic has caused me to think about, it's how germs and stuff fly through the air that you, you never considered before. Close the damn lid. I mean, I know in a public bathroom it's a little different. You don't have that. But when you're at home, yeah, you may you might leave the seat up if you're a guy at home by yourself. But especially if you did number two, close close the damn lid. I mean, it, it just keeps stuff from flying around in the air that you don't want to be inhaling into your system. So anyway, the reason why they played that King Harley Race thing is his match is up next against Corporal Kirshner. So we get the army versus a king. A very revolutionary war here. I've been watching The Patriot on Netflix lately. I mean, that movie is so unbelievably ridiculous. I saw it in the theater twice. I loved it then. I mean, I I wasn't going to question anything. Now, obviously, the Mel Gibson thing has changed quite a bit in the last 20 years. I mean, you kind of can't look at him the same way, like the the father who fights for his family in the movie. It's like, no, all I do is think about the guy who uses ethnic slurs and yelling at his Russian wife and all, all that sort of stuff. Because that was 2010 now, but still doesn't excuse it. I don't think I don't think he's changed in any sort of way. But uh, yeah, I I really enjoy that movie, and I I particularly enjoy just the ridiculousness of some of the storylines in that, like the the Donald Ro- the Donald Lo- Donald Rogue Donald Logue like semi racist character who then becomes more racist, and then by the end of the movie he. <laughs> He's, like, not racist at all. It's like, how how did this happen? It's like, 1776 South Carolina? Like, oh, and when the British show up there... By the way, the British committing all the war crimes? Ah, oh. I mean, granted, there's probably a lot of people who got colonized that that see that movie as nice revenge and all. But 
for for <laughs> it's like they go they approach the folks the, the black folks working at benjamin martin's house that's bell gibson's character like we work this land as freed men it's like yes i'm sure that there were a lot of free blacks in south carolina in 1777 and i i know i should probably look that up but uh i i tend to think that the first state that seceded from the union over slave to start a civil war over slavery probably wasn't permitting too many free black people in 1777. By the way, Danny Davis is our referee here, as Gorilla is kind of confused. The king of Harley Race and uh, what he can do inside that square Come circle. Come on, everybody, get up for the king! Oh, highly unlikely that that will happen. Well, there's a few I, people I thought he wanted up. everybody to kneel. Now he wants everybody to get up. Why don't he make up his mind? Gorilla's right. There is some mixed messaging there from Heenan. As Kirchner makes his way out, yeah, he might not be all that great. You know, his cage match rate. No, nobody out there is like, you know who's my favorite wrestler of all time? Corporal Kirchner. Now, Leatherface in Japan, probably not either. But I, I would hold that out as a possibility that it's some, somebody's favorite wrestler. I don't think Corporal Kirshner is anybody's favorite wrestler. Now, he's a lower mid-card patriot. You know, there's there's that word again. He's like the Samuel Otis of the World Wrestling Federation. Just just look him up. But did he ever win on TV ever again after this? Because think, well, he comes in summer of 85. Yeah, there was a period of time where Slaughter was gone and they didn't have any military presence <laughs> there. And yes, he did win another match after this in February of 87. And I know that I'm spoiling this. And even that was a Spectrum match against the enhancement talent Johnny K9, who, by the way, I got an episode with him coming up where he's Bruiser Bedlam. And it, the result of the match kind of blows my mind. But yeah, it's not the summer of 85 anymore here. I mean, they know what Kirshner is. They know what they got. He's a guy who carries a flag to the ring and will lose to most opponents and maybe will pick up a victory on TV if he's part of a tag team. Now, Race had won King of the Ring in July, so him being coronated made sense from that regard. I don't particularly care for it, though, because of how King Tonga had to change his name because they decided to, like, create another king over him. Luckily, he got his revenge at the 89 Royal Rumble. Which, by the way, very underrated match, King Haku versus Harley Race there. Especially considering that Harley, you know, not exactly, it's not exactly the peak of his career in January of 1989. As, once again, the heel, Race in this case, attacks right off the jump. And I notice the back of his trunks is very, it's a much smaller crown than it was later on. Did he, like, go back to, like, where he gets his gears? Like, I, I need it bigger. I should do it in a Harley race voice. But, yeah, the crown got bigger as it went along. And I don't think it's because his ass got bigger. And I certainly wouldn't suggest that because Harley race could rise from the grave and kill me at any time. As I swear to God, Johnny V called him Donnie race. Donnie race is going to give this man a professional wrestling lesson. He's going to beat him. If he was getting a lesson, I don't think Kirshner was really paying attention. He might have been high. I know. I've talked about his love for Reefer in the past. And I really don't have much to go on other than a few hearsay things here or there. As he got a belly-to-belly by Harley, which Gorilla calls a gut-wrench suplex, which I'm just like, you know, pomp the forehead, Captain Picard on that one. As Davis kind of 
when Kirshner is trying to fire up a little bit, Davis kind of gets in the way, so it's a much more subtle action by him in this case. He goes up to the top rope and misses an elbow, Kirshner does, which allows Race to now go up to the top rope. And when Kirshner gets to his feet, he hits a left-handed clothesline, so very nice. And that sets up the cradle suplex to finish. And then when Harley raises his arms up in a token of victory and Heenan's in the ring, the referee raises his hand, he's not facing the hard camera. And I'm thinking, who this guy, he's he's working... He's working Crockett. He's working Kansas City. He's, he's all over the place. Does this guy not know where the hard camera is? I mean, if there was 1986 NXT, let's think about how we would have booked Harley Race in that, okay? Because he probably would have been stuck there. Oh, no, wait a minute. See, that's NXT. Harley Race weighs more than 205 pounds. He wouldn't fit in an NXT. Without question, no single incident has been talked about more than what took place right here on television. Between the heavyweight champion Hulk Hogan and Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, very possibly Hulk, perpetrated by one Bobby the Brain Heenan, but nonetheless, certainly nothing has really been settled as of yet. In spite of the fact that I said only 8,500 were in Glens Falls, New York, and had a dark match with Hogan and Orndorff, it drew extremely well in other places. I'm not even talking about the big event, because that had kind of a weird ticket scheme with the Canadian Exposition, or whatever the hell it was called, Canadian Exhibition. Maybe that's why it was Exhibition. I, I, I don't know. All I know is that feud drew a hell of a lot of money to the point where Paul Orndorff is like, yeah, my arm's shriveling up, but I don't want to get it fixed because it's going to ruin this thing where I, I'm already in a profession where I have a limited time span. I can't do this until age 59 unless I'm Ric Flair or, or, or one of those other guys. But, like, I was thinking about Hogan. And by the way, I'll get in the plug right now for my good pal Steve Bennett, the 24-inch podcast. He and Dave Rollins are looking at the at Hogan Orndorff on their latest episode. But think of Hogan, okay? Yeah, you, you had the thing with Bundy leading up to WrestleMania 2, and, and that feels like way too brief and really rushed. But as you get to Orndorff here, and that turn happens in the summer, and it goes all the way into 87, Meanwhile, you have another great feud starting up. As the Orndorff thing is winding down, you got Hogan and Kamala, another great drawing feud. And then right after that, you have Hogan and Andre, which, while it can't be considered a draw for like going around to various house shows, at least you know in the beginning, WrestleMania three drew a hell of a large audience, both on pay per view and live crowd. I, I'm not going to I'm, I'm not going to engage in a debate about what the live crowd was, but suffice to say, those three feuds in a row is a hell of a run. It's like Harrison Ford in the early '80s with the the movies that he was doing, Indiana Jones and Empire Strikes Back, and oh god, I'm blanking on the other one, but it's a hell of a run there. So name for me somebody who had three consecutive feuds of that quality. And the ability to make money, which is, as Thunderlips says, the name of the game. Well, you're right about that, brother. And you're also right that the whole thing was set up by Bobby the Weasel Heenan. Take it back as far as you want. The Weasel has been the reason for every incident that's gone down. 
And as far as you, Mr. Wonderful, you're gonna be the butt of all the punishment. You're the one that's gonna feel the power of the 24 pythons. You're the one that when they're dragging you out of the arena, thousands upon thousands upon Hulkamaniacs are gonna be going thumbs down. And you, Mr. Wonderful, are gonna be the humiliated one. You're gonna be the one to realize that you can't cheat, lie, and backstab your friends. And you know something, Killer Ken? I got the Hulk Hogan war bonnet on now, brother. Let's take it easy on the war bonnet there, Hulk. It's not going to be for another two years until the prototype is ready for production and, you know, we can sell them in the arenas. This separates business from pleasure. Ain't been making a lot of friends lately. Haven't been signing too many autographs. But what I have been doing is I've been going all the gymnasiums, bending the steel bars, brother, running all the big bodybuilders out the back door, Jack. Because whenever I look in somebody's eyes, I see the weasel. I see Mr. Wonderful. And I'm just waiting for that day when I can get a hold of both of their necks. Then it'll be snap, crackle, and pop, man. Hulkamania lives. The holster rules. The belt stays where it's at, Jack. And that would be a good thing that the belt would stay out here. Because I know a lot of people like to float the, well, what if Orndorff had won it for a while? And if Hogan was chasing it? Or I, I, I myself have, may have even floated the Terry Funk wins it at that Saturday Night's Main event. You do the rematch at WrestleMania 2 and Hogan wins it back there. Yeah, it all sounds good, except for the fact that even a little switch ruins so much other stuff. You can't do three years to be a champion. It's a long time. The long title reign, so it lasts more than four years, means it is a much bigger deal when you do the change at some point down the road. Like, if they did the twin ref, yeah, I'm sure it would have been a big deal, but not as big a deal if Hogan had only been champion two years and had lost before, because he hadn't... You get to 1988, he hadn't lost by pinfall or submission since 1981 in the WWF. It's 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 crazy. So, yeah, you, you, you can't do that stuff. And that's why the long title... Think of the Honky Tonk Man. You, they kept that belt on him for so long, and at the end, what did you get? The the Warrior winning it, and how, just how crazy that crowd went at MSG that night at SummerSlam. I have to say, though, I really enjoyed this promo from Hogan, and not just because at the very end, he kind of moves towards the camera a little bit, and the camera kind of pans back to get him, and you can actually see above that blue WWF background that they had. And you can see like a vent, an air vent, like an air duct directly above where the two guys are standing. And all you think of is like Resnick is there because Oakland was like, I'm not sitting under this air vent with the air conditioner on. I'm going to freeze my tits off the entire time. So that's why Ken Resnick is doing this for 1986 because Mean Gene was too cold. That, that's my operating theory now, and I am sticking to it. Wrestling fans, a little sneak preview. Look at one Outback Jack from the wilds of Australia, along with some of his Aborigine friends. Outback Jack. Outback Jack, you got it. I want to see this. I'm pretty sure that that's the last time Bobby Heenan referred to him as Outback Jack and not Outhouse Jack. So we're going to get one of the vignettes here. I don't think it's the first one, but it's him just kind of sitting around with some aborigines and uh, i don't know what he's doing other than somebody is playing that 
instrument that Lisa Simpson wanted when the Simpsons went to Australia. Outback Jack is going to be something else when he finally makes it here to the World Wrestling Federation. Can he talk? Does the guy speak? I'm sure he can. Let's go to the ring. And they kept saying that after these vignettes, like when he finally makes it here to the World Wrestling Federation, as if they had this long-term plan. He doesn't debut until the February 7th Superstars. So we're talking about another two months before he even shows up. And like I said, this isn't even the first vignette. It was He was not ready for the ring in any sense. But it's defensible because it was a good idea to try and capitalize on the success of Crocodile Dundee, which had only been released in the United States on September 26th. And back in those days, movies would actually stay in for longer than a month or so. So here in mid-November, that's probably still in theaters. Now I'm wondering, like, who who are some other people that you could have brought in to take advantage of this? Now immediately I thought of Bill Dundee, but he, he's too small. He, he was not going to hack it in Vince Land for a number of different reasons. But Outback Jack, certainly a, a tall guy, and of course barely mobile. May of 1988, it's all over for him. His last appearance on the May Seven Superstars, which I've covered on this podcast. I covered the February seventh of '87 superstars as well so yes the complete outback jack catalog here on this show which by the way funny thing when he wraps up in may of 88 what happens about three weeks later after his last appearance on tv crocodile dundee 2 comes out in theaters in the meantime here in november he's working stampede to try and get him ready on the theory of well there's a lot of good workers up there maybe it'll rub off on him well, uh, it didn't. I don't know. Maybe they could have just thrown him in a random tag team with Tito Santana or Pedro Morales. Oh, no, wait. They're already in a tag team together because we got to put the two guys who can speak fluent Spanish together. And we'll gerrymander those guys together facing off against John Jackson and Steve Regal. No, not that Steve Regal. We're talking about Mr. Electricity from the AWA. And seeing, okay, Pedro is up there in years, so you kind of know where he is. But Tito, he had the Intercontinental title at the beginning of this calendar year. Are they are they giving up on him by kind of cramming him into a tag team? A year later, he'd be part of Strike Force, and he does wrestle a lot of tags, although he does have a singles feud with Butch Reed around the time of WrestleMania three. My question is, if you're running things in the WWF at the end of 86. Where do you where do you put him? Because you want him out of the IC title picture because he was there for so long from like 1983 going after Morocco all the way up to, you know, the rematches with Savage all the way through like the summer of 86. That's like 3 solid years. So you got to take him away from that. And there's two directions you can go. You can put him in the world title picture, which you can't because Hogan's your standard bearer and you're not turning Tito Santana heel. That's just it's just not going to happen. Or you move him into a tag team. Now with Morales, I don't think that there's any real potential on this one, but it's it's probably the only option that that, that they had for him at this point without completely jobbing him out and he was far too valuable I think at this point 
to start giving him the treatment that he had from like eight, you know, 1990 and 91, losing to Warlord and Barbarian all the time. And I have to admit, you know, it's not a good sign for the Tito and Morales team when you have the commentary, or in this case, Heenan. So maybe I shouldn't take it all at face value, but the brain is definitely looking forward to the feature match at the end of the show, which is the end of Captain Lou Albano. Well, I can't wait till later on, Monsoon. We're going to see the end of Captain Lou Albano. Please. Captain Lou Albano has, in fact, said that this was his final appearance. He will retire not only as a wrestler, but as a manager. But he will go out in a blaze of glory, I guarantee you. I'll make a deal with you. I bet you he's the one they beat. I bet you they beat him so bad it doesn't last two minutes. Would a steak dinner suffice? You picked the place. You got it. Santana unloading now. Well, it certainly doesn't take much to get Gorilla Monsoon to make a bet, and especially if food is involved. Like, you don't want to lose a bet involving food when Gorilla Monsoon is on the other end of it, because I feel like he could run up a pretty good bill at a steakhouse. Heenan and Captain Lou, I was thinking about, like, the kayfabe, kayfabe hat is on for this. I don't I don't have the one with the strap. You, you're going to have to trust me. I have my uh, Orioles, uh, the Oriole bird swinging the bat hat on. Anyway... Heenan and Albano only cross in the heel locker room for about three months. Heenan comes in the end of September of 84, and Albano is turned face at the end of that year, December MSG show, when Piper hits him over the head with the gold record. So they probably don't have much of a relationship, especially because, you know, Heenan kind of replaced Albano as, like, the top manager in the company as Regal and Tito Santana start out in... Regal, he might not be, uh, he's Mr. Electricity, which sounds like a sarcastic nickname if there ever was one, but he's not completely terrible. He's, he's straight out of the AWA, which that <laughs> uh, sounds weird, you know, applying that phrase to that. And we get an inset promo from the Hart Foundation, who have apparently been facing Tito and Pedro on house shows of late. Santana Morales beat us? No way, baby. <laughs> Technically, Tito Santana, you can lace my boots up. Well, Morales might be able to eat more burritos than us. <laughs> <laughs> Probably good, yeah. <laughs> but beat us now! I mean, when you think of great tag team programs in the history of the WWF, I don't think Pedro and Tito versus the Hart Foundation really comes to mind. Although Tito would be a thorn in their side the next year as a member of Strike Force. Uh, Rick Martel uh, might be a little bit greater than Pedro Morales at this particular point in 1986. But Pedro gets a side headlock on Regal, and tag, who tags out to... Jackson, who Gorilla says is brand new, and uh, I, I'm assuming so because it's the only time his name is mentioned for every result in the year 1986, and he does not have a cage match link. So, but he's kind of a husky dude, but he's going to be eating the pin in this one for sure, and he's probably going to be eating a lot more later on as a backbreaker by Pedro finishes, which was him lifting the man up in kind of like the way you would do an atomic drop. But instead of dropping him his butt on the knee, he you know turned it into a backbreaker. So, not not the worst thing I've ever seen in the world. But you know they kept it neat and tidy here. Now, wrestling fans, a bit earlier in the program, you heard from JYD, the junkyard dog, with if if you will hit list and. I think it's safe to say heading up that hit list was none other than the Intercontinental Champion, the Macho Man, Randy Savage. Well, I'm going to forgive them that sin of referring to something happening earlier that actually didn't, because it's okay, because Randy Savage is here, 
and he's got his LJN figure with him. Something just a little while ago, right over there, the macho man Randy Savage Dow dropped the big elbow on the junkyard dog and pinned him one, two, three. Oh, yeah. And that is not far from the truth. In fact, it's just about exactly what's going to happen or what will happen or uh, experience Macho Madness Junkyard Dog because uh, it's here to stay. Yeah. And you're just passing through my world. Yeah. You just take a hike down the road and I don't pick up hitchhikers. Yeah. The next part of this gets a little bit more interesting because Ken Resnick says, well, you might have a new challenger. And given all the people that he faced on TV, I I just assumed that he was going to bring up a baby face. Well, not exactly, because that Savage versus Jake match from Saturday Night's Main Event might not have exactly just been a one-off. Now, he's the one that's uh, supposed to be so cold. Coldest-blooded wrestler many people think in the annals of the sport. Oh, is that right? Well, Mr. Jake the Snake Roberts, you have never gotten any notoriety until you mention the macho man Randy Savage's name. The Snake Pet is nothing to be proud of. The Intercontinental Heavyweight Championship belt is everything. Yes, it is. It's everything, Snake Roberts. So uh, you're not nobody until you beat somebody. And the number one wrestler in professional wrestling is the Macho Man Randy Savage. And you can experience Macho Madness. Oh, yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to be that guy, but when he says you're not nobody, that means you are somebody. So you are somebody until you beat somebody. So, I don't know, if you take what he's saying literally, it changes the meaning, which I know you're not supposed to do in wrestling promos, because if you've ever listened to the Hard Times promo by Dusty Rhodes, some of it really doesn't make any sense. Like, if you were reading a script of it, like, the exact transcript of what he said. But it's all good, because it's about an emotion. I didn't really say that in my best Dusty Rhodes voice, so why don't I just move on to our next match, which is Kamala taking on Kurt Kaufman, who, for some reason, I associated my mind with Mick Foley, and I was like, did he team with him somewhere? And I think it's a Pittsburgh connection. I think they might have trained in the same place. But they were also both squashed by Kamala on an episode of Challenge. In Foley's case, it happened a couple of times. So Kamala was swiped out of the UWF in August. I don't know, I don't know if it was swiped so much. Because Kamala would run his course in these various territories. He would go in, he'd be the monster heel, and then you know he would move along to the next place. And Coco, I think, might have been a little bit more of a commodity and a little bit more of a get because I think they might have had bigger plans for him in the UWF. So here's, here's some trivia for you to ponder as I talk about this match. Who is the first guy in the WWF in Kamala's 1986 run to pick up a victory over him? And I'm talking about any kind of victory. So I'll give you the answer at the end of the match. As Gorilla, in his infinite wisdom, I think fairly accurately sums up one of the two guys who accompanies the <laughs> Kamala to the ring. I'm assuming Kim Chi is a guy. I mean, he's he certainly shaped like one. But the wizard, yeah, I mean, it, this isn't exactly my thing here. I bet you the Grand Wizard weighs 460. Kamala's got to be over five. He certainly might be. Of course, the wizard always uh, up around 40,000 feet and always dealing in mystique and magic. And in fact, when he wants to tell you about it, there absolutely is no stopping him. 
I don't know, Gorilla. I seemed pretty capable of stopping him, and I think that's the second or third time that I've done that effect for the Wizard at, at some point in time. He, for those of you who you know might be new to the program or aren't familiar with King Curtis Iakea, who played the Wizard, not the Grand Wizard. That's a different guy who sounded like Doctor Claw in the early '80s. But he, if I had to describe the Wizard's complexion, I would say a cheese grater. And that's probably not ideal, but that's what happens when you gig your forehead hundreds and hundreds of times. As as Kaufman kind of gets grabbed by the jaw and is dragged out to the middle of the ring, and Gorilla, when Kaufman gets in a couple of forearms, is like, Gorilla's like, oh, this guy could break an egg. And Kamala busts out the leapfrog, which I don't know why he necessarily had to do that, other than maybe to differentiate him from a guy like Bundy, who... They tease that feud in a month's time on TV, but it would never really go much of anywhere. And the splash finishes, and you can hear a definite buzz in the crowd when he hits that. And he's not doing the top rope thing here. It's just the regular running splash. He does go up top, but Kim Chi and the Wizard are there to kind of talk him down. I mean, the fact that here's this one guy, and he's got two people to accompany him. I mean, he, he is a jobs program in professional wrestling, and... You know, as Mike Dukakis used to say, it's good jobs at good wages. That's that's what it's like being a Kamala's entourage. Now, to answer the trivia question from earlier, the first WWF guy to pick up a victory over Kamala in this 1986 run, because remember, in 84, he you know certainly lost to Andre there. But the first guy to beat him here? The Rebel, Dick Slater, on the October 4th Jackson, Mississippi house show by disqualification. Oh you, oh, you thought it might be Hulk Hogan? Well, Kamala and Hogan don't meet up until November the 30th for the first time, at least in this run. Seconds, minutes, hours, days of the week, a year, a month. It's a concept that man put together, time. But isn't time eternity? But what I find strangest about time is... The 12 o'clock midnight is the end of one day, but yet it is the beginning of another. So the embarrassment of riches that 86 WWF has is talk shows in the A and B where Piper's pit, Roddy Piper, one of the greatest talkers of all time. And then you have Jake Roberts on Wrestling Challenge with the Snake Pit. And you figure, well, that, that should be just as good. I mean, Jake's, you know, fairly close to Piper's equal. Well, no. There's a difference, and the way I can explain this difference is to use the one thing that unites Jake Roberts and Roddy Piper, I mean, other than professional wrestling, of course, would be uh, drugs. And it's they're kind of like different kinds of marijuana, the two of them. I know I know, Jake probably prefers the harder drug, but, you know, hear, hear me out here. Piper is like a super sativa joint. Where, you know, with a very high THC and he's, you know, running around like this and very hyperactive. While Jake is more thoughtful and kind of, you know, sitting on the couch sort of thing. So he would be like an indica strain. The problem is, when you're doing this before a live audience, you need a sativa strain. Because you can't have a guy talking about the history of time. Well, I was interested to hear his remarks. It is pretty crazy how we came up with, all right, one day is when the 
Earth rotates once. And oh yeah, we got to do a leap year. <laughs> Throw it in there. And we change calendars, which I think I talked about a couple of weeks ago. So yeah, I found that interesting. But the live audience doesn't. And the snake pit fell flat most of the time. Let's think about this. The two most famous ones are <laughs> Jake getting demolished by Honky Tonk Man's guitar and the Hulk Hogan one where he gets DDT that literally nobody has ever seen. So let's see if this one's going to be a better. As Slick is on his way out wearing the red leather hat. He's still in his Jules Winfield from Pulp Fiction phase with like the, the sideburns and all that. So all right. Why would you go ahead and sell Hercules when he's on the cusp of facing Hulk Hogan on Saturday night's main event, Slick? Let me, let, me, let me set the record straight on this, okay, brother? You are exactly right. Hercules Hernandez is a great piece of talent. But you know what, brother? All of my illustrious and glorious life, I've wanted to see what it felt like to have enough power to be able to buy and sell a man. And that's exactly what I've done. I sold one man, and I bought another one. I'm talking about the natural Butch Reed. Look at him, brother. He's got glide in his stride. He walks with pride. The man's so awesome, he can't be denied. (laughs) Everybody knows that Butch Reed is a natural man. You know, it's obvious, Butch. That your future is so bright that you've even got to wear sunglasses. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> you too much. You know, everybody in the world knows that it takes years to build a career. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. But you know what? It takes a second for Butchery to end one career. It's so easy when you're that good, isn't it? It's just so easy when you're as good as we can be. Reed and Roberts seem to have a good rapport with each other. I, I think that they sat down in the back earlier and kind of commiserated about how much both of them hate Bill Watts. It must have been something like that. Well, the interesting thing about this segment is you got the snake in the in the little thing in front of Jake, and it kept trying to get away. And Jake had to kind of you know reach out like, hey, you know, come come back here. So yeah, we're just moving on from Hercules to Butch Reed. It's a situation where. They got a hot shot shortstop coming up through the minor leagues, some sort of baseball team. Baseball, baseball, baseball. I don't say that team has a shortstop right now who's pretty good, but might be better served to go somewhere else, play for shortstop for a team with a need, let's say. Heenan apparently has a need for that. So I guess, you know, you acquire Hercules, and, and that's how it went down. And of course, I was going to tie it back to baseball in some way. Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov are up next. So we go from one slick segment to another, taking on Johnny Mann and Nick Kaniski. I saw that Sheiky turned 79 earlier this week, which uh, it's pretty crazy that he's still around given all the things that he has said and done and ingested and all that sort of stuff. He's built 258 pounds here, which I don't know if they were doing their weigh-ins on the moon or what was going on, but... And I know that makes me sound like Gorilla Monsoon. Like, oh, he's definitely close to that 300-pound mark. And the answer is yes. The Iron Sheik was closer to that 300-pound mark. But I just remembered. Oh, yeah, Nikolai Volkov is there. So free anthem, everybody. Well, the very short version 
as this capacity crowd almost Russia! drowned him out, Bobby. Well, they don't deserve it. They don't deserve to hear it. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I'd like to hear it. I've heard it enough times that I don't particularly care to hear it anymore. Something that good and that good a voice you can't hear enough of. Oh, please. Now, the reason why I said free anthem is it's something I would say at hockey games when the Bruins would be playing Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto. You get a second national anthem out of it. So you get to hear a second song from whoever was doing the national anthem, usually Todd Angeli. So no no Canada this year, even when I go back to live, because they got their own division. The only place where you can hear two anthems is Buffalo, and I'm not entirely sure that they are still doing that, considering that the border is kind of effectively closed. So Sheik and Volkov are generally losing to the British Bulldogs on house shows at this time, which is as it should be, in my opinion, because just looking at these two guys in the year 1986, as we're nearing the end of that year, I feel like you can do better for tag team champions. And you always had that rumor with the Bulldogs, oh, we only wanted to lose it to the Hart Foundation. I, I I said rumor, but it's probably in a book somewhere. And with Sheik and Volkov, I don't know if Vince you know, was just ultra loyal to them or whatever, but I would have put Morocco and Orton ahead of them, and here's why. They're actually part of something that is over at this point, with the Roddy Piper stuff. Now, I'm not saying Piper should go grab himself a tag team partner. Uh, that's a phrase that would pop up, tag team, Roddy Piper. But anyway, I'm not saying that that's going to be part of that program. I'm just saying that the Morocco and Orton act is pretty solid. And I was definitely pleased at the end of this show when we get a promo from the two of them. Danny Davis is our ref. And as mandated by all Q4 1986 WWF programming, they are required to mention that as she misses an elbow and Kaniski goes for a pin it's like it gets a one count it's kind of like somebody playing a wrestling video game and like i don't know what the buttons do and they keep just accidentally going for pins but if you thought you got enough slick promo time with the snake pit well you're gonna get a little bit more right now hey i I'm the Slickster, and the Slickster never breaks a promise. And I'm promising all you people that I will lead Nikolai Volkov and the Iron Sheik to regain the World Tag Team Championship. Mark my words on it. It's weird to hear early Slick talking about titles when in his five-year career here, he, he never actually got one. Now, I know it's a babyface territory, and, and, and that's just the way it was back when it was an actual territory, and not the worldwide phenomenon that it was rapidly becoming. So a hip toss by Kaniski, that was kind of the cheering you could hear during the Slick promo, but he ends up in peril and is spat on by Sheiky Baby, but he is able to tag out to Johnny Mann, who is eventually just paired off with Volkov. And then the Iron Sheik on an Irish whip as Johnny Mann is running the ropes. Sheiky gets the knee to the back. Of course, you know what that is, the Bret Hart Memorial transition spot. He's not fucking dead. you think I would know that by now, but we actually see some psychology out of the Sheik and Volkov team. Uh, by the way, the fact that they had to use that transition spot in a match against an enhancement opponent kind of tells me that they aren't tag team champion material. But... At the very least, you've hurt the man's back with the move. So Volkov does that backbreaker that he was fond of. So, uh, so actual psychology. And then a <laughs> when Sheik gets in there, he does a belly-to-belly suplex. But once again, Gorilla Monsoon calls it a gut-wrench suplex, which 
I guess you could call it that, but a gut wrench is more to the side, as traditionally called. Camel clutch ends it. And because we have to find some sort of screwy thing with Davis in the ring, we just are like, uh, yeah, the man gave up, and Danny Davis let him stay in the camel clutch for five seconds too long. Didn't break the finishing hold quickly enough. So you just have to do that one thing every single time. And ladies and gentlemen, his dream team, first from Seattle, Washington, weighing 248 pounds, Greg the Hammer Valentine. Their partner from San Francisco, California, weighing 270 pounds, Greg Brutus Beefcake. Hell of a job there by Mel Phillips announcing Greg Valentine and then almost announcing him again before Beefcake got in his face. That's one of the problems with the first 13 wrestling challenges. For anybody who's queasy about watching Mel Phillips on there, uh, this would not be for them. And, you know, I get, I don't like it when the ring announcers are edited out. It happened in early 80s all-star wrestling with Gary Capetta getting edited out by Vince because apparently Capetta was legitimately knocked unconscious by a wrestler in 1982 or 83 in the Spectrum. I, I, I only saw that recently. Uh, it was actually on Capetta's uh, Twitter, which I don't remember what the hell the handle is. But anyway, that that's not the story here. This is Lou Albano's retirement match, which just seems strange considering how towering a figure he was for a long time. And it's funny they call him a towering figure since he was about five foot six and three hundred sixty pounds. Like he for so long he he's one of the three wise men and he's get doing his retirement on a, on a challenge on a, like a Saturday in November, but the fact of the matter is that from what I understand, Lou Albano retired due to ill health. Vince McMahon got sick of him. That was pretty much how it went down. So. What what I thought was interesting, just looking in a little bit more into Lou Albano, I knew he was a member of the tag team, the Sicilians in the 1960s, which I would have liked to have said held the WWF tag team titles, but I guess they held the U.S. tag titles that every territory had at the time. And he was, apparently, Albano was photographed holding a championship belt, so everybody thought that he had it. It was like a tag belt. And he kind of made his name in the magazines that way. I mean, you can you know tell by looking at him. He was not exactly uh, he he did not exactly win best of the Super Juniors 1963 or anything like that. But when he becomes a manager, he become he, he's not a captain right away. So you have to earn your rank. And that only came when he was managing the Valiants in the mid 70s. I think 75. So what's what's he going to do at this point? Well, of course, he's going to go off and do the Super Mario Brothers Super Show and a few other acting gigs. He'd already filmed Body Slam at this point, which came out the following year. The he does, Even though it's a retirement, he does come back every so often on that. On a Piper's Pit, I think it's in February of 87. It was definitely after the Andre turn because... Albano comes out to talk to Andre, like, why are you associating with Heenan? Well, to Captain Lou, I would say, and, and maybe I should have brought this up when I was pondering the Captain Lou Heenan relationship, is Albano managed Andre the Giant, and then when he went under the mask as Giant Machine, Albano is his manager. He's, he's now retiring on a B show. 
So Andre, he's suspended. And even if Andre were active in kayfabe, I don't think he's watching the B-show of his own program. He's just too busy getting hammered somewhere, or at least uh, trying to. That, that long pursuit for Andre to get hammered. So he's like, oh, my manager retired? He didn't even call me? And But he's like, but I need a manager. And that's how Andre ended up with Heenan. That's that's how it all starts here with Captain Lou Albano forced into retirement. And, of course, he would link up with Andre again in the UWF, the Herb Abrams version, which I had an episode recommended to me and I think I'm going to be doing very, very soon. Not not next week because I made, made a, I've been making a little few too many promises around town about what I'm going to do uh, for, for future shows. So Herb Abrams, UWF, because you know, we're going to hire away named guys, and Albano had a talk segment on there, and Andre was on there once, which spooked Vince enough into re-signing Andre to be an active guy, which, of course, never ended up happening after that point because it was 1990. But let's think about the, the sad uh, Lou Albano leaving. He's literally replaced by a dog as a manager of the British Bulldogs, who, as I've said many times, Matilda was still the best promo out of all of them at the time. I'm not including Captain Lou. I'm talking about Davy Boy and Dynamite. At least Freddie Blassie, who had been phased out shortly before this. It's funny. Grand Wizard dies in 83 right before the company goes national. And then these other guys, when they revamp the TV in the fall of 86, they're pretty much phased out pretty close to each other. And then you have the other managers, like, well, I know that there's Heenan and all that, but you usually have more than just the three wise men. Of course, later on, you'd have more than three managers. You'd have your Fuji, or in this case, you'd have your Johnny V, who, of course, was a protege of Captain Lou in the 70s, as I said. So he offers what I can only assume is going to be a tearful goodbye. This is Johnny V here. You know, I feel very happy and very elated that I'm going to be part of Lou Albano's swan song of professional wrestling. It's your swan song, Lou Albano, and it's going to be my pleasure to say, what is that, uh, Captain Lou Albano? Sayonara, goodbye, baby. Yeah, they're on a opposing sides now it's not like he's gonna you know, have a heartfelt tribute or anything and they haven't shared a heel locker room in at least a year and a half so the the real wrestlers here the non-managers anyway i mean johnny v did hold the, the tag titles himself but i'm, I'm not going to count him at this stage of his career they know they got to get in their big moves quickly because this is going to be like a three or four minute match this is not wrestlemania 2 or saturday night's main event all over again. I believe the Dream Team versus Bulldogs match from March of 86, Saturday Night's Main Event, is the longest match in the history of that program, at least on NBC, and, and for the hour and a half version. That's what I mean. So Davy Boy hits a vertical suplex on Valentine, but he ends up in trouble. Quickly hit with a slam, beefcake, it's a backdrop, and then a vertical suplex of his own. But then he gets caught. Bulldogs shoulder block him off an Irish whip. But then Davy Boy ends up down, and Valiant finally gets tagged in, and you, we're, we're kind of waiting. You have the feeling going in, all right, Lou Albano, this is his last match. They're, they're going to put him out on a happy note because the show's not happening in Carmel, New York, where he's from, where you know Vince had some sort of hard-on to embarrass people in their hometown. So when Valiant gets in there... <laughs> <laughs> Gorilla is, finds a way he, when he sees Valiant he finds a way to score on Bobby and oh there's the tag to Johnny V just can't make up his mind whether he wants to be a wrestler a manager a commentator just like you 
He's very skilled at all he does. While he doesn't maintain any semblance of an advantage for very long, Davy Boy teases a power slam. He's got him up on his shoulder, but can, just kind of throws him back into his own corner. Locks in a sleeper, but that is quickly broken up by Valentine, who runs into the ring. This allows both Bulldogs in to send Valentine and Beefcake out to the floor so we can clear the ring, allow for the Davy Boy Smith power slam on Johnny V, followed by the headbutt off the top rope by Dynamite Kid. Basically a Powers of Pain double team that was their finisher. And all they do is they, they just tag in Lou, who does not drop an elbow or anything. He just immediately goes to the cover, hooks the leg, and even though he gets kicked at three, manages to hang on for the final victory. Dynamite perched up on the top, turnbuckle bombs away. Oh, he nailed him. Oh, isn't this something? Over there giving the tag to the champ. Oh, the captain got him. Disgraceful. What a way to go out. What a beautiful victory. That took a lot of wrestling ability. That took a lot of guts, Monsoon. They will go down in the record books as Captain Louis Albano in his final appearance pinned Johnny B. Look, you can hear the crowd going nuts for Albano, but they are more fans of what once was when he was a heel. Because there is a definite shelf life for any face manager. I think Jim Cornette, who I generally consider to be the best prototype of that from 88 and 89, he, he understood that, so immediately went back heel uh, less than a year later. I, I was going to say it was a year and a half, but it was from near the end of 88 to Halloween Havoc, or maybe it was The Clash after that. Anyway, it was October or November of 1989. But wait, there's more. That's not it for Captain Lou Albano, because we're going to get the full locker room celebration but the sight that's amusing to me is George the Animal Steel in what appears to be kind of red pajama pants or pajama bottoms or something. And Corporal Kirshner is there with the reefer. I mean, the champagne. No! You're good! Captain Good! Kelly! All right, that's enough, because it's more of a visual gag anyway, because Johnny V comes into the face locker room and throws a pie at Albano and hits him in the face. But what I'm wondering is, not this breach of heel-face locker room protocol, which was discussed on GFA Live recently, but it's a point that I've brought up in the past about how do you get stuff out of the locker room, and there has to be some sort of neutral sanctioning authority that governed these locker rooms back in the day. But at the end of it all, I'm left with only one question, and it's, where did Johnny V get a pie so fast that he could, you know, basically, he's coming back after the match, and he's able to get it. Then, then again, this this is not live to tape, so maybe I'm just losing my mind in that way. As we go back, and this is one thing that is missing from the YouTube video that is available on the one that I was watching, is Ken Resnick in the interview area with 
Ace Cowboy Bob Orton and Magnificent Morocco, whose praises I was singing earlier. Well, maybe not praises, you know, singing or anything, but I said they were better than Sheik and Volkov, which in 86 might not, you know, be damning with faint praise. Now, when they talk about the Piper feud, they mention him, you know, when he's talking to Orton, you know, Orton, Morocco, but does not mention Danny uh, Adrian Adonis, mentions Jimmy Hart. Because Adonis was fired briefly between around the time of the October Saturday Night's main event to the November Saturday Night's main event. And he only they that Saturday Night's main event had only been taped the day before this aired. So he's still out of the picture, and I guess his decision was made to bring him back. His return was actually November 14th in Montreal. I think he was a sub and then did the Saturday Night's main event. He, he lost to King Tonga on that Montreal show, so... That's kind of an interesting match that I would like to see. Roddy Piper brought everything upon himself, man. If he would have left well enough alone, went to Hollywood, tried to be a big star, left me standing back here looking for something to do. I found myself employment elsewhere. But Piper can't stand to lose nothing, man. And when he come back, I had a higher paying job. He got jealous. He's a very greedy man. <laughs> the magnificent Morocco on his pit. He insulted a good friend of his and then turned around and shoved me. Roddy Piper brought everything upon himself, man. And yes, we did try to put him out. And banging that chair against his leg felt so good, didn't it, magnificent, magnificent one? <laughs> I always say how much I love Bob Orton as a henchman. And he is kind of playing mild second fiddle to Morocco here, who, by the way, looks huge. He He's kind of... In his Franco Harris with the Seattle Seahawks phase going on here, uh, for those of you, uh, just look up late career Franco Harris. I, I don't have time for this. I see you also now clad in We kilt. don't wear these kilts to praise Piper. We wear them to mock him. <laughs> to let him know what a fool he really looks like. What a mistake he's actually gone and made for himself. You had it easy. You had it easy. You had Bob Orton Ace, finest bodyguard in professional wrestling today. You had a friend, Magnificent Morocco, finest wrestler, professional wrestling today. You turned your back. You wanted to be all by yourself. So now you are. Now you're an island by yourself. You're going around looking for friends. You're going looking for JYD. You're going down, down to the slums looking for a dog. You're looking for animals. You're looking for porn dogs. You're looking for anybody who will put out their hand. Put out their hand and give it to Rowdy Piper. Because you ain't got no friends anymore. And like the ace said, you brought it on yourself. You did it all to yourself. So when your career is over, and when you thank us for your career is over, you can thank yourself because you brought it all on yourself. Look, I know I was just making fun of Morocco, but that was an incredible promo he did there on Piper. I don't know. It's just scratching me right where I itch. So Gorilla runs down when it's going to be on the following week's wrestling challenge. Hulk Hogan on the snake pit. No, not that one. Killer Bees and Morocco and Orton are going to face off, and that would be the Danny Davis screw job of the week, which I, I don't know if that was brought to you by Alcoa or how they were doing things back then. And the Moondogs taking on the Heart Foundation. 
strikes me as a very interesting match until I looked up that the hearts won in like 318 with with the heart attack. So the Moon Dogs are basically an enhancement team at this point for better or worse. And that'll do it on a surprisingly loaded WWF Wrestling Challenge from November 16th, 1986. Did some of the plugs for my good pal Steve Bennett earlier with the 24-inch podcast on Mr. Wonderful Paul Wendorf's feud with Hulk Hogan. On the Sportscasters, he's got Joe Buck on his most recent show, and he was on the guest on the Place to Be podcast with JT Rosero and Scott Criscolo, November 1991, Madison Square Garden house show featuring Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair in Madison Square Garden. you think you'd wait for it to become a bigger deal, but, you know, I guess everybody makes mistakes. And on the Our Vantage Point podcast, Joe Moran and Michael Quinn, they are doing their In Defensive segment on John Cena, who I, I think people now, I would hope, understand what they were trying to do with him and finally realize that it probably wasn't the best idea to ever try and turn him heel as the people demanded. And also they got a review of July 30th, 1994, Superstars with the Bret Hart-Bob Backlund match that I did about eight months ago. I know it was during the summer because I remember going to play basketball during it. And I sure as hell haven't been doing that for a while. We got down, we got up, we got funky, and we got bad. <laughs> Whoops, wrong podcast. That's from the GFA Live Files, which this weekend, I'm not sure what we're going to be covering yet. I, I'm still going through what, what I what I want to do with that. I know we just did the two-part series on the June 9th, 97 shows. And maybe we'll do something like that in the future. Who Who knows? But in any event, I talked about shows that I have planned coming up for ECW, 1997-ish time frame. There's one big angle that happened on the weekly TV that kind of blew my mind at the time. Smoky Mountain Wrestling, 1994. That was the Bruiser Bedlam match that I could not believe when I saw the result of it. AWA from the Team Challenge Series era. I don't think I've given that proper treatment. I did one show from January of 90, but... I don't feel like they went into it enough. And, of course, the Herbert Abrams UWF, because apparently there was a match between Bam Bam Bigelow and Rusty Brooks, and that's something I want to be a part of. And I, I should mention that Rusty Brooks actually recently passed away, and I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast when it happened, but you know, I, I was very sad when I had it in mind because immediately my mind goes to <laughs> his hilarious stuff from that to TNT in 85 that I played back at episode 150. So rest in peace, Rusty Brooks. I'll be doing probably one of those you know, promotions in years on next week's show for episode 210. But before I can even begin to consider thinking about signing off, I've got to do a, an edition of YouTube Comment Theater because this video has been on the site for a very, very long time. Although there's only 25 comments, like I guess not a lot of people really are into this. I mean, 86 WWF, really? I, I, I don't, I don't get it at all. But these are, of course, as always, actual YouTube comments left by what I can only presume are actual users. Rusty Kuntz says, oh, former third, first base coach, and I'm sure it's not, you know, just making fun of the name. Steamboat was a great wrestler, but a terrible promo cutter. Well, yeah, it was a weakness considering, you know, his considerable in-ring 
skills, and the replies are all kind of in agreement with that. Angel GD says, Gorilla has problems with distance and space. 18 feet from the top turnbuckle is barely 5 feet to the top, top of Coco's head. I wonder if Frankie is alive today, those things live to be 80. I know he's a legend, but Race looks about 20 years older than he is in reality at this time. What? <laughs> WTF, did they say Kirschner weighed 260 or 216? No way, this guy goes on for a while. But anyway, his point about Gorilla with problems with distance and space does stand. But when they would say 15 foot high steel cage, I was always willing to let them get away with that because, all right, it's close. If the ring is five foot high and the fencing is only eight, well, all right, it's 13, but it's close enough. You know, it's one of those times I was just willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Dan Rohn says, I wonder if Frankie is still alive. Well, I, I got news for you in the parlance of Shawn Michaels. Don't Google that, okay? If you if you don't know what happened, don't Google it, because pets dying, that's not something that's going to make your day feel any better. Eric Tate says, When will WWE Wrestling Challenge and Superstarts be on the WWE Network? Well, Superstars from 92 and 93 are on there, and only the 13 challenges at the beginning. Politically Correct Redskin, yeah, that's the actual name, says, LOL at Kurt Kaufman. Mullet, mustache, pale, and skinny. Just the works is a squash jobber to me. And his job for the night was to get jumped on by a large Alabaman. This stuff is what I've, what has been missing from wrestling for the last 30 years. <laughs> Indeed, that is what, exactly what has been missing. He also added a different comment. Man, Coco just had the worst gimmick ever. This is why you never mentioned in a job interview with Vince that you sort of like birds. <laughs> All right. That is, that is a valid point. Uh, Tamale, too, says, I remember watching this when it aired. Coco Beware was only two months in and was over to an extent greater than his push. He hadn't been completely slotted as an undercard guy and fans wanted to get behind him. He knew how to work the crowd and how to make his high spots work. Savage gave him a lot and was very unselfish here considering his spot. And it goes on a little bit further, but the point is well taken. That Savage did give him a lot at the end once he allowed him to make that comeback. Terminat 1 says, Imagine Harley Race tagging with Haku against Hacksaw and the Macho Man. Best two out of three falls. The losers face the guillotine. Hey, uh, Terminat, you know, it's, it's not real, okay? I, I just have to mention that to you. The RMM1976 says, King Harley never caught on with me as a kid. I never saw him in his prime, so he always looked like an old man with a grandpa physique. Well, Harley Race is going to come up from the grave and he's going to choke that guy to death. And Dan Roan says, I like YouTube better than WWE Network. Well, we'll see how it is when it goes to Peacock, because apparently my network subscription where I can stream through Roku or whatever, don't have to go through Peacock, expires next Thursday, so that's just great, and that'll do it for YouTube comments here. And I just want to add before I sign off for the week that a five-star review is always appreciated for Greg's Town on Apple Podcasts or wherever fine podcast reviews are accepted because it provides what is known as social proof that you're listening to and enjoying this program, but... Just want to add, I know I usually say this at the beginning, but I like to add it at the end as well. The, the other kind of social proof is if you contact me directly. It's greatingsmallentown at gmail.com and on Twitter at Pod. Give me a follow there. Thank you so much for listening and tune in next time for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown. 
Albano. Sayonara, goodbye, baby.